Hello, I'm Ross Royden, the Vicar of Christ Church Kowloon Tong here in Hong Kong. Thank you for listening to my podcast. This week is the second Sunday of Advent. My podcast for this week is on the Gospel reading for the week. The reading is from St. Mark's Gospel, Chapter 1, reading verses 1 to 8. The transcript of the talk can be found on my website, rossroyden.com. It is also posted in the Christchurch Facebook group. Please share the link to the podcast with anyone who you think may find it of interest. I hope you'll want to come back again next week for my next podcast. Next week, for the third Sunday in Advent, we will be thinking about what the Gospels mean when they say our Lord is the one who will baptise us with the Holy Spirit. Have a great week ahead. Hear the Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, as it is written in St. Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, beginning to read at the first verse. Glory to you, O Lord. The beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. This year, year B in the lectionary, we're going to be reading from St. Mark's Gospel. St. Mark's Gospel is the shortest of the four Gospels. Luke is the longest, then Matthew, then John. In the history of the church, St. Matthew's Gospel has rather overshadowed St. Mark's, as most of St. Mark's Gospel is also included in Matthew. This has changed in more recent years, as scholars have come to believe that Mark is the earliest of the Gospels and formed the basis for both St. Matthew and St. Luke's account of of the life and teaching of our Lord. Three Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, are usually known as the Synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic here means having a common point of view. That there is a close relationship between these three is clear on even a superficial reading of them. Quite how that relationship came about is less clear and it is not easy to understand although that doesn't stop scholars speculating and trying to work it out. The likelihood is that the Gospel of Mark itself was written in Rome around the time that St. Paul ended up in prison there, sometime in the AD 60s. Although some scholars would argue for different dates, both earlier and later. We should imagine then a group of believers in Rome who have been invited to a fellow believer's house to hear a new book read. 
This group will contain believers who are either Jews or Gentiles who perhaps have been previously attracted to Judaism. The new book is about Jesus, who the believers worship as their Lord. The first words those listening hear are the words we have just heard just now. Beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Scholars today get quite excited about this as they claim that this is the first time that the word gospel has been used to describe a written account of the life of our Lord. Previously, scholars argue, it was used of the proclamation of the message about Jesus. In fact, unlike the scholars of today, it is unlikely that those hearing St. Mark's Gospel read for the first time would find anything unusual in what was read or in the use of the word gospel to describe it. In fact, those present might remember the first time they heard St. Paul's letter to the church read out to them in a similar way. St. Paul, in introducing himself in his letter to the church, writes the following. He says he is set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the gospel concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's Romans chapter 1 verses 1 to 4. There is then nothing particularly unusual in the way St. Mark uses the word gospel. Those listening to it being read would have been used to the preaching of the gospel beginning this way. St. Mark is making a similar statement at the beginning of his book to that which St. Paul made at the beginning of his letter. St. Mark may even have got the idea for it from St. Paul. If the Mark who wrote the book is the same as the John Mark in the book of Acts who accompanied St. Barnabas and St. Paul on their mission when they were sent out by the church in Antioch, there is every likelihood that St. Mark had heard St. Paul preach and preach the same message many times. St. Mark writes that the gospel message about Jesus Christ, that, that is, Jesus the Messiah, also known as the son of David, was in fulfilment of the scriptures. The message that the apostles preached, in which St. Mark is writing down, is one that had changed the lives of those who were gathered to hear it read, and it was one they believed had the power to change the lives of everyone who heard it. It was not, however, a message which had come from nowhere. Its coming, like the person it was about, had been promised many years before. But how does this message, which was promised in the Holy Scriptures, in fact begin? St. Paul doesn't say so in his letter, but he would agree with St. Mark, as do all the other Gospel writers, that it began with John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus by him in the River Jordan. This is something that St. John, who approaches the story of Jesus somewhat differently to the other three Gospel writers, also agrees with. John the Baptist, then, is an important figure in the preaching of the gospel. It is with him that the gospel message can be said to begin. John the Baptist's own appearance in the Judean desert was itself promised in the scriptures. More than that, everything about how John the Baptist is described would have reminded those listening to the book being read 
of the story of Israel in the scriptures. John the Baptist is described by St. Mark as looking like the prophet Elijah. Both were hairy and wore leather belts, and they both seemed to have been at home in the desert. The desert, of course, was where Israel wandered for 40 years after her liberation from slavery in Egypt. It was where she was tested, and it was where she received God's law. The river Jordan that John baptised people in was the river that Israel had had to cross at the end of those 40 years to enter the promised land, a land flowing with the honey that John liked to eat. It is this new prophet Elijah and the wilderness itself that the people of Israel are coming to again to renew their commitment to be the people of God and to find forgiveness for their sins. And they are doing this in order to prepare for the coming of the Messiah promised by the prophets. And they will again cross the Jordan in baptism. What the people don't know yet is the identity of the Messiah. John the Baptist is insistent that it isn't him. That's not his role. He isn't even worthy to help the Messiah take off his sandals. But we do know the Messiah's identity because it is the first thing St. Mark has told us. The Messiah's name is Joshua, or Jesus as we know it from the Greek. It means God saves. It is the name of the person who first led the people of Israel from the wilderness across the Jordan and into the promised land. The Messiah, John the Baptist tells people, will baptise them not just with water, but with the Holy Spirit. But first, the one who will baptise with the Spirit is himself baptised. As Jesus comes up out of the water, the heavens are torn apart, and the same Holy Spirit who hovered like a dove over the waters at the beginning of creation descends like a dove on him, and a voice from heaven reveals his identity. You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. The message about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, has begun in the way the prophets promised it would. So what does this tell us today, as we, like the crowds who were baptised by John, prepare for the coming of our Lord in this season of Advent? What it tells us, I think, is best expressed in the words of our Lord himself. Jesus said to the woman at the well in Samaria, Salvation is from the Jews. In just 11 verses, St. Mark has managed to locate his story about Jesus firmly within the story of Israel and her relationship with the God of Israel. This is something all the gospel writers do in the opening of their accounts of Jesus' life. St. Matthew begins his gospel, an account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus' earthly descent is traced by St. Matthew through key figures in Israel's history. St. Matthew goes out of his way to show how Jesus' birth is in fulfilment of the words of the prophets. St. Luke's account stresses that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the consolation of Israel. And St. John, while differing from the others in the style of his presentation, emphasises that the word made flesh came unto his own and is the king of Israel, even if his own don't recognise it.
The writer to the Hebrews writes in words that we shall read at Christmas. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. Jesus brought about something new. His coming was like no other. He was like no other. However, in seeking to show how significant and life-changing his coming was, many talk as if his coming was completely unexpected and came out of nowhere. Yes, Jesus changed everything and changed it in an unexpected way, but his coming itself was something expected, predicted and long-awaited. It was in fulfilment of what God had promised and what the prophets had described. Jesus, after his resurrection, tells his disciples that they shouldn't have been surprised. The scriptures had all talked about him and his coming. The coming and the meaning of his coming are so rooted in the scriptures that to understand what his coming means, we must understand the scriptures. And this means understanding what we today call the Old Testament. But the scriptures that the story is so rooted in and which are foundational to it are the Jewish scriptures. Yes, we understand them differently to our Jewish brothers and sisters, but by labelling them old, we also imply that they can be quietly forgotten, except for those nice bits that we like to read out of context and give a modern meaning to. In the second century, there was a teacher in the church called Marcion, who argued that anything to do with Israel had to be got rid of, and that the God of the Old Testament was an inferior God to the God of the church. This Jewish God, Marcion argued, was not the Christian God who sent Jesus, but a lesser God. The church rejected Marcion's teaching, but the church has since, in its history, been more Marcionite than we care to admit. Nowadays, it is openly so. Whereas once we generalised the Jewish scriptures to make them ours, now we just ignore or reject them altogether. Marcion believed that the God of the Old Testament was wrathful and vengeful, whereas the New Testament God, the one that Jesus taught us about, Marcion believed was kind and forgiving. forgiving. Marcion's day has come in our own. For many in the church, what we call the Old Testament is simply an embarrassment. As also is the fact that Jesus was a Jew. And not only a Jew, but sent exclusively to the Jews. Jesus was not God incarnated as every man, nor even as a man of the first century in general. He was incarnated as this particular man sent by God in every way as a man of his people to his own people. Jesus' Jewishness was not incidental to his identity and to the Incarnation. It was an essential and integral part of his DNA. God didn't just become man. He became this particular man. And this man came with a specific role to play in the history of his people Israel. This was what Jesus' earthly ministry was about. Jesus couldn't be the saviour of the world until he had fulfilled his role as a prophet to his people and had been rejected by them. The church has made the Jews the question. 
The question, however, isn't about the Jews. It's about us. It is about where and how we Gentiles fit in. And that's not obvious. That we should be included in the plans and purposes of God in the way we are is something that was not only unexpected, but that was hidden. St. Paul calls it a mystery that God has had to reveal directly. It simply wasn't something that the church could know otherwise. So how are we who are not Jews to respond to this unexpected offer of grace and welcome? We should respond with gratitude, with thankfulness and with humility. Like the wise men this Christmas, we come to the baby at Bethlehem as Gentiles. But we also come, as the wise men did, seeking him who is born King of the Jews. Yes, Jesus is more than that. He is, as we have been seeing in the past couple of weeks, the Lord and Judge of all. He is now more than the King of the Jews, but he is not less than that. He is the root of Jesse, the son of David, the glory of his people Israel. He is Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He is the one sent by God, as the Blessed Virgin Mary puts it, according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ was and is the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. John the Baptist, St. Luke tells us, said that those who came to him should not say that they had Abraham as their ancestor, as a way of justifying their lifestyle. God could raise up children of Abraham from the stones of the wilderness. John the Baptist meant by this that those who came to him should show by their actions that they were children of Abraham. But in a sense, and in a way that John did not envisage, God has raised up unexpected children for Abraham, and we are those children. St. Paul insists that all who share the faith of Abraham in the promise of God are children of Abraham, and that God's promise finds its fulfilment in Christ. All who have faith in Christ are now children of Abraham, for he is the father of us all, all who believe. St. Paul teaches that we do not need to convert to Judaism to be adopted as children of the God of Israel. However, it is still the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, revealed now in his son, who adopts us. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the same God who called Abraham to leave his country and who led his people out of slavery to freedom in the promised land. The history of the people of Israel is our history. As St. Paul puts it, we have been grafted in. But that does not mean, as St. Paul makes clear, that God has now rejected his people. They are still beloved for the sake of their ancestors, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. There are, however, many who go a step further and argue that because God has not rejected his ancient people, it is now wrong for us to seek to evangelize and convert Jewish people to Christ. Without in any way wanting to downplay the horrors of the church's treatment of the Jewish people in the past, for us not to seek to share the gospel with the Jewish people today is to completely miss the point. Our Lord came in the first place as the Messiah, beginning the gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, 
St. Mark writes. The gospel is to the Jew first. Why wouldn't we want to share it with those who Jesus came to and was one of? Clearly, there is a right way and a wrong way to do it. But not to do so would be a grave dereliction of duty. The right people to do so are believers who are themselves Jews, who have come to believe in the Messiah. And they need and deserve our support. As then, in this season of Advent, we prepare to celebrate the coming of the Messiah. We should align our prayers with those of St. Paul who wrote, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it by the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my own people, my kindred according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from them a According to the flesh comes the Messiah, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. As we read through St. Mark's Gospel, and especially as we celebrate this Christmas, the birth of the one who was born King of the Jews, we will understand him better and serve him more fully if we understand him for who he is, the one promised by the prophets the saviour of his people, their Lord and ours.